Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to Local Zero. I'm pleased to report that the full contingent is back once again, and I am, of course, joined by doctors Rebecca Ford and Fraser Stewart. And today, we'll be exploring greener and wilder gardens. If you're fortunate enough to have access to a garden, balcony, or a windy box, or even if you simply have a love of green spaces, which I think most of our listeners probably do, today's episode will be of particular interest. Joining us later is Kate Bradbury, an award-winning garden writer, broadcaster and TV presenter specialising in wildlife gardening. Yes, and in case you missed it, consider this a polite reminder to go and check out our last episode that we recorded pre-Glastonbury on decarbonising the music industry. And a further reminder to subscribe to Local Zero wherever you listen to your podcasts, check out our website localzeropod.com and follow us on Twitter at localzeropod where you are more than welcome to get in touch with us. Before we kick off, I just wanted to thank a couple of listeners who have dialed in and said some really lovely things about the pod. First, we heard from Jack Irwin from Low Carbon Hub Oxford, who I think is an organisation we've covered before. We've had representatives on the pod speaking about them, so it's really good to hear. Um, Jack emailed us to say, I'm a huge fan. I've listened to most of your episodes and I'm starting to capitalise on them in my work. Episode 69, which... I didn't quite realise we got that far, but there we go. <laughs> Episode 69 on retrofit was particularly useful as I'm working on an innovative project about retrofitting in Oxfordshire. And Jack also pointed out, so he's he's clearly got the sort of academic thing about um, a feedback sandwich, uh, <laughs> positive, <laughs> negative, positive, but pointed out that there is a societal bias towards domestic retrofit in our pods, and could we possibly invite experts for a non-domestic retrofit episode pod? So, guys, I think that's a fair, fair criticism from Jack. And mm-hmm. something we, we may be going to correct and, and get in on the roster. Absolutely. Good stuff. So thanks, Jack. And also, we heard from other folk, didn't we? We've got a long list. We did, we did. It's been it's been a, quite the week on the Local Zero hotline. We have another thank you to Alan Thawley on Twitter, who got in touch to say 
that maintaining some positivity, I, I don't know if that's what we specialize in, but we try to, but maintaining <laughs> some positivity is so important, even if only to keep you going as you protest against the uh, pretty generalized failure we're currently seeing, which is why I always recommend people listen to Local Zero Pod. Thank you very much, Alan, for the kind words. Positivity in the face of failure. I love it. That should be your tagline, Fraser. <laughs> Or is it failure in the face of positivity? <laughs> I don't know, one of them. Either way. Yeah, a reversible t shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so how we how, how is everyone? Did anybody watch any of Glastonbury? Yes, I did. I kind of I do this every year. I kind of force myself to watch some of it. And then I spend the first ten minutes wishing I was there. And then the sort of remaining time thinking the sound quality on this iPlayer episode is terrible. And that's probably Patrick <laughs> and Dave, our producers, that <laughs> got that kind of spectre hanging over me. But yeah, I, don't, I enjoyed it. What about yourselves? Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. Enjoyed it a lot. Um, I, You know what? I used to think that I liked going to festivals and stuff. And I went to Tea in the Park in the early 2010s and it just rained and rained and rained. And when you're, you know, it's nice on the first day when you're with your friends and it feels like good fun and you're having a drink and stuff. But when you're hungover in the mud, in the rain and your tent's flooded, mm. it's not quite so so nice. So I, I enjoy watching it from the armchair. From the dry armchair, I'm assuming. <laughs> <laughs> Very odd phrase. In particular, I thought Elton John. What a guy, man. That was that was a Glastonbury set. I know this isn't the purpose of the pod and listeners are switching off as we speak. Well, but. They, they won't be phrased. It was last week. This is exactly the topic we covered. If you haven't listened to it, you really well, ought to. We didn't cover Elton John. We didn't, co- <laughs> we didn't have Elton John on the pod, no. But, you know, he... he, he. He sadly couldn't make it. He was otherwise... Unlikely climate <laughs> hero, Elton John. Yeah. Um, but we did cover this. And it, I kind of watched the um, coverage thinking, what is, how green is this? How low carbon is this? I don't know. This is the kind of thing, once you have that debate, you start to pick up little things, you know. What what what's what are they drinking in their hand? What's the kind of stalls behind them? What car, you know, are those all the cars in the car park? And, you know, just it starts to set you on a trajectory. I'm not trying to be a killjoy, but it it begs the question. Uh, so I really enjoyed last week's episode. Yeah, I think, you know, we need a, a, a chart for the music festivals in terms, not in terms of like, you know, how popular they are or who's headlining, but how green is your festival? Well, I'm, I'm top of the pop. Somebody needs to develop a really good pun there, Fraser. I'm largely looking at you here, but um, <laughs> no, okay. I, yeah, I'll duck out for the next <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> going to dial off, come back in. Okay, so so yeah, Glastonbury was good. For those who haven't listened to the music episode, please uh, check it out. Really enjoyed that one. Um, other news. So, uh, Becky, uh, last episode, you were coming, dialing in and out. Double glazing's in. It is. Um, apparently, you, you look snug as a bug. Um, I've got my Octopus Mini, which, I don't know, some, some of the folk listening to this will be like, oh, yeah, I've got one. It, it tells you energy, ele- electricity consumption every five seconds or ten seconds. I'm not sure I need that level of granularity in my life but i have it how do you get anything done we 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 are very very lucky that we've got solar panels and we've got a little app that shows the power flows and it's mesmerizing i can't stop looking at it and going okay battery's fully charged get the dishwasher on how do you do anything with five seconds worth i i I think it is simply i don't know I, I, I think it's about trying to ferret out demand, which you didn't necessarily know was on there. But after a while, it's a bit like the, the initial home in displays, you know, do you just stop looking at it after a while? I think it's maybe when... Well, how is... do you see it? Is it an app? Mm. Yeah, it it's an on, app your, on phone. your phone. So Fraser's yeah. quite right. You just, you end up stop, stopping doing like valuable things in your life and just 
kind of looking at... Does it alert you? Does it give you alerts? Your fridge cycling on and off. Oh, God. <laughs> well, yeah. does it give you that breakdown? Does it just give you a graph or will it also explain to you what's coming on? It gives you a graph. So, I mean, I was there boiling a kettle, looking at it, and nearly scolded myself because I was like looking at the data <laughs> of the kettle. So, you know, is data dangerous? Yes, it is. So, I, I don't know. I mean, we'll report in. I've literally just hooked up this lunch, so, so we'll, we'll get in. But... Um, other news, bigger news um, than my octopus mini, the Climate Change Committee have come out today, folks, and said we are way off target. Um, so of their uh, 50 key indicators, I think 11 are, are kind of off track, 14 slightly off. There's there's um, there's a lot of work to be done. And Lord Deben, who is the outgoing chair, been replaced a bit temporarily by Professor Piers Forster, came out with a sort of excoriating letter, absolutely demolishing the government's progress over the last year. So I, I, have you been following this? Is this something you've had chance? Because it's just come out today, so or whilst we record. Well, it's out today, but I feel like it's, it's been building for a while. I mean, I can't say that seeing these, these figures finally has shocked me based on everything that we've seen in the run-up to this over the past year. And, you know, it is. It's shocking how... I'm not shocked, but I am no. appalled kind yes. of thing. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay, well, there you go. That's pretty that's pretty damning, isn't it, Fraser? Yeah, yeah, That's. I think that's right. I, I agree with Becky completely. It's, it's, not a, it's not surprising, especially if you work um, in any way, you know, in the energy policy space, in the climate policy space. Um, it's, it's frustrating more than anything, especially on the back of, you know, I, I appreciate the timelines for these reports as well, but on the back of things like the Skidmore review at the end of last year, which highlighted from yeah. within government itself, we're not doing enough, but there's huge opportunity here if we accelerate this, if we really, really put our foot down to see that we're still lagging on so many things and things that we know need to change and in some ways know kind of what needs to change to get us there. Um, yeah. it's, it's incredibly frustrating. What I would say that I found interesting from this and something that we've been big proponents of on the pod is again from the, the Climate Change Committee, an emphasis on the need for public engagement and communication. I don't know if either of you picked up on this as well. Yeah, I th and I, I appreciate that. And it will only go so far in it in itself. You know, I think what we need to see is the engagement and the communication alongside better business models, better support from industry, better governance structures. You know, heating is such a big element in this, right? There's a huge uncertainty around the future of heating. It feels like everyone that you talk to in the industry knows exactly what, what we need to be doing, but we don't seem to have that direction from government. And every person I speak to, every householder I speak to is so confused and just <laughs> relies on what their tradespeople tell them. And so I think we need that that uh, that engagement with people. We need that communication, but we need a lot more surrounding that as well. Definitely. Yeah, I'm, I mean, and just on heating, the UK, you know, according to one of the, the figures in, in that progress report. Oh, it's shocking. Versus other European nations, the lowest numbers of heat pumps installed. Absolutely per shocking. Head, per capita. So, you know, it's just, just some basic, like, Basic numbers here, and this is one of the things I think the CCC is so great at, is that, you know, you can't fix what you can't measure. Um, and it's kind of pointing out where, you know, uh, work needs to be done. Um, but I think the overwhelming message was we've we've treaded water uh, for a year. 
overall. In some respects, we've gone backwards in other areas. And when you've got the kind of this locomotive heading down the tracks of, of climate uh, breakdown, you really are going backwards if you're not moving forwards. Okay. But the, the, other, the other point which was kind of snuck away there in their headlines was um, some of the solutions that are out there to deliver on these ambitious targets, too technocratic. We're, we're relying too much on technological innovation. And really, we now need to step up and empower and inform households and communities to make low-carbon choices, stronger demand-side policies. And this is where, and we say this time and time again, this is now where action needs to be taken and it's not action that can be done behind the scenes in society around the boardroom tables and you know uh, uh, by you know by traders investing in this that or the other this is stuff which matters around the kitchen table and we're now there and until we have a government this one or the next that is willing to step up and to make that vision and as you said before a vision that isn't just about low carbon but a more prosperous happier and fairer nation we're not going to get there because no no politician will want to make those difficult decisions. I think I think that's right. And something that comes through the report, which which we know quite well already, is that actually, as much as we see, you know, conflict or controversy around climate action or climate measures in, in the headlines, there is broad support right across yeah. society in every corner of the country for in some cases quite radical climate action, certainly action that, that benefits people. But that's not a given. You can't take that for granted. And if you have people who have come to the halfway line to meet you and you're not there yet as a government with mm. the action that you need to take to make these processes easier, whether that's a heat pump, an EV or better public transport, whatever it might be, uh, then you might find, especially with the context of the energy crisis, that that um, appetite isn't as isn't as solid as you think. Um, and I think meeting meeting that that demand and that appetite is so so important at this moment in time. We can't wait around for that. Mm-hmm. So I did some research back in oh goodness before my kids were born. I want to say it was probably about 2016, 2017. That's and that's that, that's BT, isn't it? Before twins. Before yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I think the findings are exactly the same today. And and the needle hasn't moved. And it was that delivering a lot of the solutions needs to happen at the local level because you can't just put you can't just dangle a financial incentive carrot and expect people to take it up we really need coordination of a lot of the stuff being delivered and local authorities are so well placed to do that if only we could resource and support them and devolve powers to them but we need a national vision and strategy clear policies and i think we're not going to get there unless we remove it from the politics of all of this like we need we need evidence based policies and then we need to see clear strategies for delivering them at local levels. And we just don't have that. Mm. A very important point, Becky. And one I think we ought to have maybe an episode on is about how we need to change the whole way that we do net zero and uh, you know the extent to which it's aligned with politics. Um, segue alert, you mentioned um, strategy and what have you. One of the things that's kind of tucked away again in the headlines is the need there for a strategy around land use change. Okay, so that's mostly the kind of that system scale um, peatland deforestation, but the land that most of us are familiar with is in our is a sorry the land that most of us are familiar with is in our backyards. Okay, if we're lucky enough to have uh, lucky enough to have one, so not something you're probably going to see in the average CCC report, but gardens are an important part of that makeup, not just for climate for, bio, for biodiversity and all the rest. So, question quiz alert: 
and do not read, do not read the notes. <laughs> do not read the notes. That's what whatever he says. So how much of the UK is taken up by gardens? Oh, fingers on buzzers. Oh, didn't we cover this in one of our previous episodes on land use? And it's a it's a smaller amount than I thought. Time's ticking. Hang on. Okay, so by gardens, are we are we including houses as well? Like, so are we including no, no, total no. land footprint? Yeah, oh, not okay, so not the built environment. Got it. The green space outback. Go on, Fraser. Plump, plump for one. Pick a figure, any number. Uh, I I think it's I, I'm I'm with Becky on this. I think it's maybe probably lower than we think. I'm going to go for five percent. Okay, Becky. I'm like looking out my window, trying to gauge how much of the uh, <laughs> scaling <laughs> it up. Taken up by gardens. <laughs> yeah, and I live somewhere that's quite rural. So then, if I think actually, most people live in cities, and a lot of people yeah. don't have gardens. And at gardens all. are getting smaller too. And gardens are getting smaller. Mm-hmm. Maybe I, I want to halve what Fraser said and say two and a half percent. Okay, right. Well, between you, that's good. Between you, there or thereabouts. In England, it's about five percent. That's the government's own land use statistics. Um, suggestions there, if you're looking UK-wide, it's probably lower than that, around 2%. That's from the Wildlife Gardening Forum, um, who've put up their own kind of calculations, which broadly made sense mm. to me. But if anybody's got any uh, contestation around that, glad to hear it. I don't know, Matt, if you if you have it to hand, but why would it be lower around outside of England, around the rest of the UK? We're getting into the weeds in this, Fraser, um, pun intended. Okay. So we're, we'll I'll come to that. For, for, maybe we need to do a kind of backroom, you know, post chat um data debrief but i think it's about the size size of gardens but also the fact that there's more land given over to other stuff um and that we'll come to that but so if you were to take these estimates as a whole uk it's roughly about the uh, fifth of the size of wales and it is uh, garden area this is for england garden area is more than four and a half times larger than that of our national nature reserves. Wow. So this is a big space. And actually, it's often in extremely, obviously, no surprise here, it's in highly population-dense areas, so in the towns and cities that aren't very biodiverse. But I want to put it to you two. For you, what does your garden space mean? You know, is it a, is it a refuge for wildlife? Is it a, a place to store uh, carbon is it a you know a, a refuge uh, for everything natural, or or does it play another role? What 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 the fo- first words that you conjure? Shame <laughs> about my hair. Shame. <laughs> Space for shame. No. <laughs> What's the no, it's where I go just, to just uh, feel disgusted. <laughs> just shame. Okay. So we, no, but my garden, my garden has no grass. Um, which actually, it, where I live, it's very hard to grow grass in the gardens. It just dies because I'm like I'm very coastal. Um, but it's just we have barbecue out there, gas powered barbecue and yeah. um, decking and stones, and there's nothing green at all. Actually, my husband's growing courgettes, which is very exciting. That's the most exciting thing that happens in my garden. Okay, right. Well, so so maybe Kate can offer you a few pointers. Possibly, Fraser, you've just moved out into the sticks. Um, I'm, I can imagine that you are the laird of a sort of 10,000 hectare estate. There's deer running wild. There's a bubbling brook in the corner. Is this correct? Is this a wildlife refuge or? Yeah, almost, almost. It's mostly um, Americans with rifles. They pay really, really well. So we just, we let them come <laughs> in and do what they want. 
Um, no, I, I have a nice garden space. I have a big bit of grass out the back and then a little a little sort of garden space out the side, which I have, um, I built myself a couple of raised beds and I've planted some things. I'm not, my planting's gone well in that my, my, uh, my veg grew really well, but I've been away for work and stuff. So I've been really bad at keeping on top of it and actually eating the stuff, which would be nice. But yeah, like ha- I, half of it is wild. We wanted to keep it sort of nice for local flora and and beasties and stuff we we've noticed locally to us within our sort of community groups community spaces that there seems to be a real struggle for biodiversity just now people are noticing less and less so we try and do a little bit in the garden as far as possible and we have a little bit that's well kept for you know for if we have people around and we're chilling in the sun and stuff but yeah we try and make it useful i think that that link there between kids and nature so this year i've left part of the garden at the back there we've got a weird garden it's um it's on a hill so it's not actually that usable but at the top of it i've just kind of let it go um and elsewhere i've put in a little barrel pond took half a whiskey barrel tanked it sunk it and you know made that space we've got frogs in there and the kids love it and for me you know Mm. they're kind of learning but they're having fun at the same time but we've got an expert on this don't listen to me i'm i'm a pure (laughs) amateur who just grazes on the odd odd bit of information you just look like a gardener (laughs) look like i've just come in just yeah a bit frayed around the edge poor man's monty don is what they call me fraser um so (laughs) i think we ought to ask because this this notion of how do we wild our gardens should we wild our gardens what's the benefit because i think it goes beyond carbon and all the rest so i'm hoping becky fraser and myself we get a few top tips so should we bring her in definitely Hello, my name's Kate Bradbury. I'm a garden writer and author specialising in wildlife gardening. And one of my books is called Wildlife Gardening for Everyone and Everything, which encourages us to do more for the species that, that live amongst us in our gardens. Welcome, Kate, and thank you for coming on to the pod. Um, so I told my kids, I've got six-year-old twins, uh, told them I had a wildlife gardener coming on, and they are immediately uh, most important person in their lives. So they're really excited <laughs> about having you along and to make, turn our garden into an absolute jungle. Um, maybe before we get into some top tips about what each of us can do, um, with or without a gardener, I might add, um, I just, maybe if you could offer a bit of background uh, to your life, your work, how you ended up becoming a kind of guru around wilding our gardens and making them more friendly spaces for nature. Okay. I I mean, I've been gardening since I was about three years old, sort of, you know, pretty much came out of the womb and was gardening. So it's sort of been in me for, for my whole life. I'm sort of in my early 20s. I was the weird one that had the allotment and, you know. Um, my, my, my partner at the time... Um, her, her her flatmate it was those post student days of where you're all a bit useless and and her her flatmate Johnny had thrown out an old duvet into the backyard because it was mouldy rather than throwing it away or washing it or any of the things that you might do with it with a duvet that was a bit smelly he just threw it into the backyard and um, a bumblebee made a nest in it and uh, we didn't notice and the neighbours complained and um, the first we heard of it was the landlord phoning at my my partner and saying. Um, if you don't get rid of this bumblebee nest, we will. And I thought, well, hang on a minute, we can't do that. And suddenly I sort of became this bumblebee champion. I sort of Googled how to move a bumblebee nest. Uh, we moved it in the middle of the night because you're supposed to move them when it's dark, when all the bees have returned to the nest and they don't stink you. 
at night, although they do if you shine a torch um, in the nest. They sting you, they sting you in the face. These are already good tips. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, I'm, and I moved. I moved the nest to my allotment, and then didn't do any work for the rest of the year. I just, I just used to go down and just, and just, just stare at the bees, and was just completely in love with them. And that sort of started this big, this big love of. Um, I think you know, I've always, I've always been in tune with the natural world. But you know, I grew up in Birmingham. I grew up in a very sort of suburban area. I was never sort of encouraged. Not, didn't have one of these amazing wild childhoods. Uh, but yes, that, that that bumblebee nest was was my sort of way in really. And suddenly everything all came together and um, I started writing about it. And and have enjoyed writing about it because you've got various books that you've, you've produced. But yeah. also beyond that, I mean, I think I first became aware of you um, my, my sort of my permitted sort of one hour of watching TV of the weekend, which when I'm exhausted, sort of between three and four on a Sunday, get Gardener's World on. None, none of the family are particularly, you know, interested. And I think I saw you on there um, talking about what we should and should not be doing. So you know, there's yeah. so you've had a really exciting career since the you know moving bubblebee nest from two phase. Yeah, I ended up. Um, I mean. You know, applied for a job with Garden as well magazine, ended up becoming their wildlife editor. And, you know, just, just literally because I wouldn't stop talking about bumblebees, they, they gave me this job. Um, and uh, <laughs> and just, just, yeah, yeah. just, just um, tried to get bumblebees on every page. And it, it, do you know what? It worked. I, I, got, I got them in quite a lot. And um, it's just grown from there, really. Mm, because, I mean, Garden as World is an interesting one for those who've watched it, maybe coming in. But I, I've definitely seen a change in the last few years, talking a lot more about nature. I mean, you've been an important part of that, but I've, you know, it's been a bit inspirational for me and others, I think, to think of their garden beyond just being, you know, fruit, veg and flowers, really. I think so. I think so. Um, and I think more of us are sort of waking up to the importance of our gardens as well as providing habitats for species that are, you know, declining, um, you know, stepping stone habitats, all of all of those things. So, yeah, it's it's welcome. I'd like to see more wildlife gardening, but yeah. I've sort of, I, I hear a lot about this. I hear a lot of people talk about wild gardens or rewilding. And I think as a concept, I, I get it. But what does that actually mean in practice? So if we think about a wild garden, how is that different from one that isn't? You know, it's not just an overrun garden, right? There's something very special about yeah, it. So can you maybe give yeah, us a very hint? low maintenance garden? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It can be an overrun garden. I think. I think the beauty of gardens is that they're mosaic habitats. You know, we all have this sort of small space outside our back door, which combined is, is this sort of enormous habitat. Um, there's 22 million gardens in the UK, and they're all they're all very different. Um, a wild garden. <laughs> ultimately is 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 quite wild you can have you know people talk about rewilding people talk about wildlife gardening um and you know i think it can be what you want it to be really it can be your your vision of what that is um some people literally don't do anything to their gardens at all it's completely wild it's overtaken by brambles that's where the foxes live you know it's 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 very wild and and, and every so often we need those habitats dotted in amongst all of the other gardens because that is where you'll get the foxes breeding it is where you'll get the hedgehogs living um it, you know you'll get birds nesting in there as well most people don't want that most people want something that is visually appealing and that they can use as well so then you have areas of long grass perhaps or you have if you want to keep your lawn short you grow pollinator plants or you grow native plants for um egg laying moths and butterflies um and you know grow climbers at walls so birds can nest so you know you're managing a habitat you're 
bringing in things from wild natural habitats to enhance your garden as a habitat. Um, is that wild or is it a managed habit? It, I, you know, it's, it's a very sort of broad term, um, but ultimately it can be what, what you want it to be. I, I think the main thing from a climate perspective and, and from a sort of biodiversity perspective and a mitigation perspective as well is, is that we just grow as many plants as possible because they literally have, you know, can help with with all things. What would be the worst? Because there's this really interesting kind of dichotomy between doing absolutely nothing um, and then kind of over-managing it. Uh, just reading mm. the Isabella Tree and Charlie Bowles' new book, the, the book of rewilding, and the, I think the reference uh, quote George Monbiot in terms of, you know, somewhere between over-managing and under-managing lies this sweet spot. <laughs> Contested point. Yeah. But what would, in your mind, what would a, the opposite of a wild garden feel and look like to be to be sitting in on a summer's day i mean it would be it would have a plastic lawn it would have no borders no plants you know it would just be a very sort of derelict um space very dry space with no plants in it and i mean i live in a very urban area and and we have those you know lots of people pave their gardens or they cover their gardens in plastic grass for ease um they, they see their gardens as an outdoor room um, then, you know, I suppose the next level down is, you know, you've got a nice lawn, but you mow it too often, you mow it too short, you, you know, um, you grow plants that are double flowered, which may as well be plastic because the bees can't access flowers when there's too many petals. If you can't see the central boss of the flower, then a bee can't access the pollen and nectar. Um, using pesticides, using slug pellets, um, not letting plants complete their life cycle. So, um, you know, in a, in a wild garden or, or a wilder garden, leaving some plants to seed um, is really beneficial for the plants themselves, but also for the birds that eat seeds. Not many people know that if you don't cut back your lavender after flowering, then you get sparrows eating the seeds. You get sparrows eating the seeds of lots of other plants as well. Um, so yeah, chopping everything back in in autumn as well. Lots of you know, it's it's always been the tradition for gardeners to just cut everything back, put it on the compost heap, and that denies so many species um, opportunities to overwinter, hibernate. The extreme, I suppose, is is just completely nothing there, plastic paving, whatever. But then you know the variations going down, which is over managing. You know, I, I'm just sort of thinking back to what you were saying about how how the there are there is no one specific wild garden there are lots of different ways of doing it and the different ways might give rise to different species being able to be supported i mean is this i'm hearing a lot more about this recently um is this something that's kind of that's sprung up in in reaction to something like what how how important are our gardens in mm. this you know addressing biodiversity addressing the climate crisis and is there a reason that they seem to, that seems to be more important now than it than it was before or is it just that we're more aware of it now um, I think it's that we're more aware of it now. I think gardens, I mean, I've been banging on this, about this for years, is that gardens are this untapped resource. Um, we've got 22 million gardens in the UK, as I said, you know, combined, they could be the biggest nature um, reserve in the country. Lots of little linked habitats that provide corridors, that connect wider habitats, that enable species to move, especially lots of species going to be moving north over the coming years. You know, they need the habitats, they need the corridors in place to do that. Um, so that it's huge untapped resource. And I think as well, just the wider 
acknowledgement of how decimated areas of the countryside are with the use of pesticides, with habitat loss, with the growing out of hedgerows, all of those things. You know, we live in one of the most nature depleted countries in the world. And then we've got these gardens and actually, you know, there's so much we can do. And I think the other thing with gardens is the fact that so, so many things with the climate crisis, so many things with biodiversity loss in the UK, we're making such painfully slow progress. Whereas actually in our gardens, it is all about the power of the individual. You can go out today, you can plant a tree, you can dig a pond, you can not mow your lawn, you can stop using pesticides, you will make a difference. You know, you can talk to your neighbours, they can do similar things. People stop me. My front garden is like a little meadow at the moment and people stop me and they talk to me about it. And it's infectious. And that is how you create corridors and that's how you create little biodiversity hotspots within towns and cities. And... We can we can literally do that now. We, we, we've got to wait two years for a general election, but we can do things for biodiversity and for climate in our gardens right now. I think that's a, a really, really cool thing. And I really like that idea. Um, it's, it's not unique to gardening, but I've seen it myself um, with that kind of thing that it can be really, really infectious. And the, the social side of it as well, the community side, is, is I think could be really a really powerful sort of gateway for... Uh, for connection and, and for other climate type things, which we all come back to. Um, but I guess something something that we see so much of, especially with, you know, big sort of white new build developments, whether that's a plastic lawn or more generally this this kind of mindset where you've, I don't, this cultural thing where it's you have to mow your lawn and keep it pristine and it has to look nice and it has to... The tidy brigade, is that's tidy my, brigade. my term for them. But <laughs> my, my rudimentary understanding is that this is something that's kind of a hangover of Victorian gardening yeah. and uh, wasn't necessarily how we did things. But yeah, sorry, I'm jumping in, but that's that's who we call them in there, the tidy brigade. I sometimes, I'm, I have to fight against it myself, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's difficult, right? It's like growing your hair out when you hit that awkward stage and you go, I, I have to leave it if it's going to go anywhere. But how do you, Kate, how how do you, you've already touched on it a little bit with that kind of individual action and talking to people, but how do you overcome that wider mindset of a lawn should be pristine and nice and, and groomed to encourage this? What I tend to do is I talk about all of the amazing species that use the lawn. So I get very excited about um, meadow brown and gatekeeper butterflies coming into my garden, about large skippers, about speckled woods. Um, I find loads of little beetles in the thatch. Um, I had, what did I have breeding last year, which was really amazing. I had six spot burnet moths breeding in my little garden. Like there's really amazing things that can happen when you just let your grass grow. It's more interesting. It's more fun. Mm. Um, I was planting, um, I've actually moved my meadow into my front garden and I, I was planting buttercups into my front garden recently. And I, I got some looks, some funny looks from people, um, cause I was literally planting weeds into what, most people consider to be a sea of weeds. I think I have an advantage because of, you know, who I am and, and you know, most neighbours sort of know that so that, you know, they don't tend to challenge me. I think other people just, you can mow around the edge of a little meadow, which gives the, which lets your neighbours know that it's a deliberate habitat and it's a managed habitat and that, you wouldn't believe it, but that works so well. I think what a lot of people is there's a fear they think you're letting go they think you're bringing the house prices down you know there's just this innate fear and actually if you do something like mow a little mow a little um rim around it or put a little sign up saying this is for the butterflies 
then people it's they instantly relax and they think oh I could do that um, and I've had neighbours coming up to me. I've got I've got a neighbour who's got a strip of a strip of grass outside a house, and she says, "Oh, I, I want to do something with it. What should I do?" And so I'm now helping her, you know, create this meadow. And it, you won't believe there will always be some people who want to be really tidy and they want their everything to be ship shape. But actually, the majority of people, I think, will approach you and will will want to do something themselves. They just they've just been waiting for that person to do it first. So I love this. So you're you're helping your friend. She's got a small space. Mm-hmm. He's got a small space of, of um, lawn. What do you do? Give us some top tips that anybody could do that's got a small space to make their garden better. If you want to have a meadow, I think you need to accept that it is that hair growing out phase that you were talking about, Fraser. It's going to look a bit rubbish initially. Um, the easiest thing to do is let it grow. And see what turns up. Now, it might not be very beautiful initially. You can plant plug plants in, so you can plant plug plants. Plug plants are small plants that arrive in little uh, little cells um, of of trays, little, little multi-celled trays, um, and you can plant those into the lawn, uh, and they will grow. Um, you can sow seed, but that tends not to be very effective, especially when you, the grass gets going. It can it can be quite um, vigorous. Some people talk about taking off the top few layers of soil and then completely re-sowing it, um, re-sowing a meadow, which I think is a very long-winded way to get ultimately what you want to be achieving, which is just some long grass with some wildflowers growing in it. So I'll just let the grass grow, plant some plugs plants into it. Um, this... Um, a seed called yellow rattle, which is a, parasi- a semi-parasite of grass, and that reduces the grass growth. So you sow that in August, so you know we're not very far away from that. There'll be lots of seed available in August to buy, um, and put that on the lawn, um, and hopefully that will help decrease the amount of grass growing. And then we cut it in autumn or cut it in spring and remove the grass clippings, and that slowly reduces the fertility of the soil which increases the abundance of wildflowers if you don't want to do that to your lawn i mean dig a pond ponds are amazing ponds provide habitats drinking water um breeding habitats for so many species and also the sludge in the bottom of your pond holds more carbon dioxide than the equivalent area of trees like it's amazing um all of these things also help mitigate against effects of climate change like flooding i've i I dug a pond uh, last winter and one of the things i've been really amazed by it's only a little barrel pond old whiskey barrel halved it tanked it sunk it Mm -hmm. what i was amazed but we put in some tadpoles a couple of water snails no fish because they'll eat everything else um the i was amazed by how much stuff just appeared like in there so i was you know expecting all the flies to come in but obviously i hadn't really banked on the fact that the, the flies hoverflies dragonflies are going to lay stuff in there and so you you, you kind of look in there it's like it's a crucible of life it's just this primor- <laughs> primordial soup of stuff that i've never seen yeah. before and i'm there i'm kind of my kids are learning but i'm there i'm fundamentally learning some of the building blocks of life in my own back garden and and so I, this is a long-winded way of me sort of getting into what some of the the co-benefits are of this, you know, about actually if you start to do something different with your garden, the learning that you have, how does it maybe sort of start to influence how you look at the world more broadly? Like it's almost like you learn something in your garden which you can take outside of your garden and it starts to to change the way that you think. I don't know whether that's something you've found personally or you've seen in other people that you've been helping. Absolutely. I mean, 
it, it, our gardens are a little windows to the natural world, aren't they? You know, we see a bee on a flower, we start to notice things. We start to notice when the bees come out of hibernation, we start to notice which flowers the bees feed from. We notice when the birds start courting and when they start nesting, gathering nest material. And, you know, if, if we're lucky enough to get birds nesting in our gardens, you know, we can watch that whole process. It connects us to our gardens. It connects us to the wider landscape. We understand more. I think gardeners, more than anyone, um, apart from those who are very clued up with the climate crisis, you know, are so aware of when it doesn't rain. Like when it doesn't rain, everything falls apart because we have to, I mean, I'm just going to my allotment every day at the moment to water because we haven't had rain for so long. And it's not just, you know, and I'm acutely aware that my plants aren't getting water, but the soil is baked. The blackbirds haven't been able to get enough worms to feed their young. The robins have also been struggling. Um, loads of, but I mean, three or four weeks ago when it was key bird nesting season, Load, there were loads of reports of birds, um, bird chicks dying in the nest because they couldn't get enough moisture because baby birds don't drink water. They get their moisture from caterpillars and worms. And if they can't get caterpillars and worms because it's too dry, they're going to starve in the nest. And you, as a gardener and as someone who's connected to that landscape, whether, you, whether you're a gardener or not, if you have a garden and you observe what's going on in your garden, you don't have to be a gardener, but you connect to that and you understand, you understand that the changes in the weather the changes in the climate are directly affecting things now. And also that gives you the power to be able to do something about it. I had some robins nesting in my garden. It was really dry. I saw a robin take a sunflower heart out of the bird feeder and dip it in the bird bath and take it back to its nest. And I was like, okay. So I started, you know, getting worms out of the compost bin and leaving them in little piles all over the garden. Um, and also got some mealworms and soaked them and left them in um in the bird bath um for it to to take to the young and all five chicks fledged so they were fine and they were fine because i recognized what was happening and i stepped in to help them and we can all do that we can all be little stewards we can all be we can all help we can all do stuff to help i I love this. I want to ask you about my garden. I feel like this is like, this is brilliant. So, and, and this is actually an ongoing this, debate. This is, we haven't I, brought you on for a free I, consultation. Or <laughs> so, you know, we're in this situation where it's hard to grow that. We don't have much space. There's probably a lot of people that don't even have gardens as well that might have maybe just balcony spaces, you know, concrete bases, uh, window boxes and so on. What can people do to engage that don't have the capacity to grow grass or don't have the space to do something um, like we've been talking about so far? If you've got, haven't got a garden or if you've got something that's decked or paved, you can, um, you're limited, but if you think about corridors that certain species need to move to other habitats. Um, for example, I live in Brighton on the coast and lots of species come in um, when they migrate, they arrive in Brighton, they spend a few days in the garden and then they move on further into inland. Could you give us an example maybe? So um, I get lots of birds coming in, so chiff chaffs in spring and uh, willow warblers, but also hummingbird hawk moth, which is a, 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 a migrant it used to be a migrant bird, but it's 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 sort of now overwintering here um, and had a very good year last year in the drought um, because it's a Mediterranean species and can cope with dry climate. So it, that's going to be a resident species very soon in the UK. Um, 
if you've got a if you've got a window box, if you've got a doorstep, if you've got um, a, a small paved garden, a, a balcony, patio, whatever, you can grow plants in pots. Um, plants in pots tend to need more water because they have a smaller area of soil to, for their roots to penetrate. So I would always recommend growing Mediterranean herbs. Um, you can grow things like rosemary, lavender, oregano, chives, thyme, all of those things in pots. You can use those leaves in your cooking, but you can also let them flower and they produce amazing flowers. Mint as well, um, grow mint separately. Um, <laughs> they grow, they, ha they have some of the most amazing flowers for, for pollinators. Oregano has some of the best butterfly um, flowers you can grow. So you can do stuff like that. You can create little, little nectar bars so that they can refuel on their way to somewhere else. Nectar bar. You can also have a little bird bath so that, that the birds can come in and have a little bath and then move on. You can even grow some native plants so that egg laying moths can 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 complete their life cycle. So I was I was laughing, Kate, at your point about mint there. I naively my this this is my first year planting anything. Um I it happened to marry a solicitor and we got a nice garden. Lucky um, you. I put mint in with some <laughs> other herbs and thinking I had a I had a herb, like I know a box of mm -hmm. herbs. I have a box of mint. That is that is now what I have. Yeah. And everything else is somewhere buried beneath. What I think was um interesting, sort of, I guess, calling back to what you talked about, this this point around I, I guess leadership and sharing information and lessons. My my gateway into this. Um, I was never interested in gardening all my life, really, but my grandfather was, and he he worked in sort of uh, voluntary organisations locally, still does in his retirement, uh, growing food at the local allotment to then provide to the local food bank. So this kind of social tie to it that, that um, you know, serving the, the needs of the community, bringing the community together around it was more my entry point, my interest. And I guess from, from that perspective, how... Um, how, how powerful, I guess, is is the gardening conversation as something that can, you know, build ties locally, can can be at the heart of communities? Because we see it more and more sort of community gardening as well for people who maybe don't have their own space. Um, how how important do you see that as being, and like Matt talked about earlier, how um, what do those sort of co-benefits look like? Um, it's I mean, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. The power of community as we all know, is absolutely amazing. Um, I think food growing as a way in to that is phenomenal. And, you know, going forward, we all need to be growing more of our own food, don't we? You know, um, so teaching community to grow food is hugely important getting everybody involved getting everybody involved in little bio blitzes counting hoverflies and bees and, and you know finding out all what's going on you know putting up bird feeders seeing what arrives it gets people interested and it gives people the confidence to go and do that at home as well um and like you say just lovely things like you know growing food to give to, to donate to food banks like you know all of that stuff with where where my allotment is we've got um, a little food bank um, and we all sort of give our surplus veg to the food bank and, and people come and get it um, on, a, on a Sunday. And it's, you know, it's it's a really lovely community space and there's lots of little community plots going on around there as well. There's lots of very good things happening. Um, so again, if you don't have a garden, you can get involved with one of those things. I'm sure there's there's loads of stuff in, you know, locally that you could, that you could find. I suspect there's a whole element here about trying to understand the baseline of how wild our gardens are 
and whether they're getting better or worse. So Becky pointed out that there seems to be a raising level watermark of awareness. But is that, you know, are we actually seeing changes on, on the ground or not? Are we seeing changes in terms of uh, increases in populations of, of species? No, um, I'm afraid. Um, I think what's happening is is, is there's a polarisation at the moment. You know, there's still a, an increasing trend for, for plastic, grass and paving, but there is also an increasing trend for, for doing wilder things to our gardens. Um, so at the moment, it seems to be polarising. I hope that with a bit of love and encouragement, we can get the plastic and paving gang to come and join the, the wilding gang and we can all do really amazing things locally um, and bring wildlife back to our cities and our towns. Um, it's hard to quantify what is happening with the insect populations in our gardens because nature reserves and other open areas are visited by recorders, um, ecologists who do regular transects and they count what's going on. In our gardens, no one's going to knock on your door and ask to come and count all of the, the wildlife in there. That's up to you. The only way people are going to know what's going on in your garden is if you tell them. So I um, record species with iRecord, which is similar to iNaturalist um, and, you know, I have I have species lists. I, I don't record, I don't measure the abundance of species, but I just record the species lists. Um, and I think the more people who do that, the more people who learn how to identify things, record them, let scientists know what's going on. Because obviously we can have loads of species coming over from the continent. We can have loads of species in, from the south moving north. There's going to be a lot of change, lots of species dying out, lots of some species increasing. Yeah, and... I was kind of sounding off on Twitter the other day saying, oh, you know, first time I've ever heard oyster catchers, you know, and I've heard them constantly this year and I've never heard them for the for all the years I've lived here, never heard them. And I was thinking, well, that's, you know, I was thinking, is that a good sign, bad sign? And people straight away sort of saying, well, actually, it's probably a bad sign. It sounds like something's been disturbed somewhere. And I, well, so just this point about, I guess it's, a, it's, it's two points, is those observations, if they're in, in your garden, not necessarily a good thing if there's a displacement and second that the gardens are are interconnected with the rest of our landscape mm -hmm. so i think you know i'm 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 surrounded flanked by t uh, two golf courses um <laughs> the extent to which you know i'm feeding them or they're feeding me with anything w worthwhile and wild so i don't know maybe if i put that to you before we i mean yeah absolutely our gardens are not you know lots of people see their garden as being this sort of small space out that side the back door to all of the wildlife it's not. It's part of the wider landscape. So my wider landscape includes um, a little park um, and neighbouring gardens, but also the high street and the bins. And, you know, it's a very urban environment and that's where I live. And, you know, it's it's it, it's 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 very urban um, that connects, though. I'm not too far from the South Downs. And actually, the more of us that can that can create corridors and, and do wild things in our gardens, the more we can actually create little corridors going up to the South Downs, which is really beneficial. But the wider landscape might be um, a floodplain or, you know, some chalky downland or woodland. And your garden will benefit from the species that live in those. But that habitat could potentially benefit from, from what you're doing in your garden as well. So I think it's really important to just take a wider look and, and see where you are. And um, certainly as well, looking at what species are local to you and seeing if you can do something for them in your gardens. That's really exciting.
my kids went to an outdoor nursery and we used to have the app uh, where they could, through the leaves, identify which trees they were looking at. And they're so engaged in all of that. And then I take them to school and it's just concrete everywhere. There is, mm. there is nothing. I just think there's such a missed opportunity there around really engaging, you know, swathes of our community in these these kind of shared uh, shared learnings and shared opportunities. Um, we could keep talking to you for ages, and I've got like, I, you know, as Matt said, it's not a self help <laughs> podcast. But I feel like I could ask you so many questions, but I, I, I know, I know, we're coming up on time. I guess thinking about. All of these different areas, you know, some people have gardens, some people don't, some people have some shared spaces. Um, you know, if you could just make a single recommendation to people who have listened to the conversation and are keen to get involved in, in some way, you know, in 30 seconds, what would be your number one recommendation to them? Number one recommendation is to grow more plants. Just if you've got a wall, cover it with plants, grow climbers. Um, if you've got balcony, whatever, grow pots of plants. We need more plants, plants to support wildlife, plants to absorb water, plants to cool ambient temperatures. Um, we all need to grow more plants and that would be my takeaway. Thank you so much. We've all taken copious notes. <laughs> Please do check out Kate's books. Find her on a, a Twitter account, Kate Bradbury, but in particular, Wildlife Gardening for Everyone and Everything. So, Kate, thank you so much for coming along. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure too. You've been listening to Local Zero. Please take a minute, if you can, to subscribe to the pod, hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to us. And if you know anybody who might enjoy it, word of mouth is a really powerful tool, as we've heard in today's episode. So if you haven't already, please take a minute to find and follow us on Twitter at Local Zero Pod to get involved with discussions over there. Also, and increasingly a few of you have been doing this, please email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share some longer thoughts. And we're always open to suggestions for potential episodes. But for now, thank you and goodbye. Bye. 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 Produced by Bespoken Media.